Welcome to Green Apple Pod, for people who want to think about education a little bit differently. I'm Jessica Enderlin-Natsum, a public school teacher and PhD candidate in education policy. I've spent nearly a decade observing and investigating how to make education the thing that's going to make our whole society happier and healthier. Now, I'm fighting to make that our reality. Before I was a teacher, I studied biology in college. I studied cells, genetics, ecology. But even today as a teacher, I've always loved evolution. And today I teach it to 10th graders using a lot of the same notes and activities and metaphors my own professors used on me in my classes. But part of studying evolution or natural selection is about how organisms have changed over time so that we can predict how they may adapt to change in the future. And if they can't, Will it possibly cause them to go into extinction? There's a concept I remember learning about in a reading during my last year in college, and even though it's not in my curriculum where I teach now, I still include this tidbit every year because I think it's so important for students to understand just how quickly these little things can go wrong. This concept is called the extinction vortex, and I know it sounds a little dramatic. To be fair, it is dramatic. The idea is that as a population declines due to some event, an earthquake, a disease, whatever it is, the population declines faster and faster exponentially. Meaning, once a species becomes endangered or approaches extinction, it goes towards that extinction faster and faster, and it's harder to stop. For those of you who need a visual image, think of a whirlpool, whether in the ocean or when you pull the plug out of your bathtub. If you're on the edge of the whirlpool, You can almost lazily just swim out of it. Not a problem. But once you get drawn into the whirlpool, once you get past the edge, you spin around it faster and faster and faster until you get sucked down below it. That's the extinction vortex. Once you lose too many members of your species, you're pulled into the center of that whirlpool, and it's really hard to get out of it because it's really hard to increase your population and escape the vortex. Part of the reason it's so hard to escape is because once the population shrinks, there are fewer members left to handle whatever challenges made the population decline in the first place. As a result, the population is going to decline faster and faster, eventually cycling down until there's no one left at all. There are tons of examples of studies on the extinction vortex and its various subtypes in academic biology literature. But I'm not here to talk about all the birds, fish, rodents, marsupials, big cats, canines, marine mammals, and more that we've lost. I'm actually here to talk about teachers. You see, for teachers, COVID was our big change. And while we already had a problem, or problems, keeping teachers in classrooms, this COVID was the equivalent of, oh, say, a huge fraction of polar ice caps melting and leaving polar bears stranded with an ever-shrinking habitat, decimating part of their population. Now, as more teachers leave, there are fewer of us left trying to do the teaching job. And the job is even harder because we're in a pandemic. And there's even less of us here to split up all of that extra work. You've probably seen in the news, the bus driver shortages, the sub shortages, the vacancies. So as more teachers leave, the work gets even more difficult, and even more teachers begin to wonder, how much longer can I do this? But what now? How do we fix this? How do we keep teachers in classrooms? What makes them cross the line from, I can do this, to, I'm so out of here? 
That's what I want to find out on this season of Green Apple Pod, the teacher attrition vortex. Teachers are not okay. They don't respect teachers. People say so many awful things about public school teachers. You know, my take-home pay with my master's degree and title of teacher of the year was $1,800 a month. And my rent was $1,100 and daycare was $700. So, like, that's my check. And that's not counting insurance, diapers, groceries, phone bill. I mean, we were in the red and uh, embarrassingly so. In two years, I have three experiences with harassment and none of those students faced serious consequences. Um, and that was horrible. The teachers are exhausted. There's low morale. They can't handle another thing on their plate. I contemplated leaving at that moment. Like, I remember I cried all day long. I don't know if I can last till I really don't. My name is Jessica Nadsom, and this is Green Apple Pod the teacher attrition vortex. What you just heard was a series of clips from some of the three dozen interviews I've done in the past several months talking to teachers, school leaders, instructional facilitators, academic researchers about teacher attrition. And spoiler alert, it's not good. I got into this work because I'm a teacher with seven years of experience in Title I schools but I'm also a PhD candidate studying educational leadership policy. However, through all of my time working as a teacher and then studying rigorous academia, I realized there's a massive disconnect between the research that we produce that tells us best practices and what is accessible to our school leaders and even our teachers to improve our classrooms. The purpose of this podcast is to bring together that research and that real-world context so that we can make solutions together. And for the first season of this show, I'm choosing to address teacher attrition. Unfortunately, teacher attrition is something I'm all too familiar with in my career. In fact, my first experience with it came before I even had my first teaching job. I didn't originally plan to be a teacher. I went through what is called a non-traditional licensure pathway. Basically, I didn't get a bachelor's in education, but I went through some training so that I could get my license and work on it while teaching in a high-need school for a couple of years. When I first went through this process, I was originally told that there were two possible communities I might be sent. One was only 45 minutes away from where my parents lived, where I was from, and that was my top pick. My mom's family was actually from that community, so I was familiar with it, even though it was a super high-needs area, and it had a bit of a stigma around it. But it was close to home. I wouldn't have to pay rent. I could stay with my parents. Things would be a little less expensive. The other community was an hour and a half away. It was in the middle of nowhere, and I had never even heard of it in a state that I had been raised in. So I wasn't really looking forward to it. However, I will never, ever forget. It was May. There were two weeks until I graduated college. And the company that was setting up where I would go told me that one of the school districts wanted to do a phone screen with me, just talk to me, get a feel for me, and see if I would be interested in coming to work at their school. Ultimately, I didn't have a choice where I went, but I figured I might as well get to know the people beforehand make a good impression on everyone, and get a vibe for what the environment could be like. The superintendent herself called me. 
She worked for a school district that had about 800 students, K through 12. It was, I believe, like 90% free and reduced lunch. And she was the most enthusiastic, happy woman, just excited to talk to a biology teacher. She was excited that I had majored in biology, that I was excited about teaching. And she said, well, you'll be the only biology teacher since we're such a small school, which for me was a little alarming, the idea of not having someone to learn from, but also exciting to have the autonomy to do what I wanted. And then she said, well, our students haven't actually had a biology teacher for a little while. The last one retired over a year ago, and we haven't been able to find a new one. So all of our students have been taking biology virtually for the past year. I swear, my jaw hit the floor. I'm sorry, what? (laughs) This is, for those who don't know in my state, a state-required class. And until last year, there had even been a high-stakes end-of-course exam you had to pass in order to graduate. And these kids hadn't had a teacher for a year. That was unheard of to me. And then I realized that I would not be working 45 minutes from my parents' house, commuting, and I would not, in fact, be saving money on rent. And I resolved I was moving to that community an hour and a half away because those kids hadn't had a biology teacher in over a year. That was my first experience with teacher attrition and the impact it has on students. That was seven years ago. In the end, I stayed at that school district for two years, and I love it. I still think of the kids that I taught there. I still think of that school so often and all the things I learned as a first and second year teacher. But ultimately, after two years, I left that school. It was in a tiny community. There wasn't a lot to do afterwards, and I was 24. I, you know, liked to do things in the evenings with friends. Part of that decision was influenced by my husband, who had just graduated law school. We decided to move to his hometown where there were more opportunities. The pay for teachers was much higher. I had been making $30,000 a year as a first and second year teacher. Now, just by moving an hour and a half west, I was going to be making $10,000 more. I would have a lot more amenities. I would have a lot more things to do. At the time, I was just excited. I was getting married. I had just gotten my master's degree in education. And while it was hard and I still miss my students and miss that community, I was excited to move on to the next step. That was five years ago. Now I've got my master's. I've got an education specialist degree. And I'm in the dissertation phase of a PhD. And I'm the first to admit my time in the classroom is coming to a close very, very soon. I don't know what it's going to look like yet. I hope it's more opportunities like this podcast, bridging research and on-the-ground experience together to create solutions. But I just don't know yet. But what I do know is I'm not the only one who's leaving the classroom. In fact, it used to be 50% of teachers would leave the classroom within five years of starting the profession. Since then, it's gotten a little better. I think in the past three to four years, we're now at 44% of teachers will leave classrooms within five years. The majority of those leave in the first and second year. When you hear that statistic, we're not saying, oh, if we look at two teachers in the same school, one out of two will leave. That's not the case. Because not every school has a major attrition problem. The school I mentioned where I first worked, 
It did. They didn't have a biology teacher for a state-required course for over a year. And I know they've since struggled to get math teachers, English teachers, all sorts of other subjects. Whereas, say, the school I work now, while it is Title I, it is high needs, there's never been a core subject they couldn't fill. So when you hear that statistic of teachers leaving, please keep in mind, this is not a generalization you can blanket apply. Because overwhelmingly, the students who are most affected by that statistic are students in high needs, rural, low-income schools. But right now, I'd like to address the elephant in the room. It's COVID-19. And it has exacerbated our teacher attrition problem. I say exacerbated because in the world of education, COVID didn't really cause a lot of new problems. It mostly exacerbated problems that were already there so that even more people felt them and those who did feel the effects felt it on a much stronger scale. You've probably seen in the media, on Facebook, on TikTok, countless videos, posts, appeals to people to be kind to educators, to see what we're going through, to see what's happening in classrooms, to understand this is why I decided to leave. And while I can't speak to the truthfulness or the extent of each of those anecdotal examples, nevertheless, they're still happening much more than they used to. And as a result, what's happening to these students when teachers leave? Is there someone there ready and willing to replace them? Picture a kindergarten class. A teacher gets burned out. A teacher leaves. Who's going to take care of those 15 to 25 kindergartners the next day? There's not necessarily a bunch of people lining up to take these jobs right now. In fact, there's a lot of teachers lining up to take other jobs outside of the classroom. So what's happening to teacher attrition in regards to COVID-19? Before I go on, I think there's a couple things you should know about this project. First of all, as I've said a few times now, the goal of this project is to bring together high leverage research and the in-the-trenches experiences of educators. So throughout the project, I'll be highlighting interviews with teachers, principals, school facilitators, academic researchers, policymakers, all in an attempt to bring this information together so that we can all learn from one another about what is best for teaching and what is best for our kids. Second, this is not just about COVID and teacher attrition. Yes, COVID has had a big impact on teacher attrition, but teacher attrition is not a new problem. Here, we are simply addressing the elephant in the room. What's going on right now and what has been happening in the past? And I'd like to start addressing it by talking with some people who have done some rigorous academic research on the topic. So my name is Gemma Tamaro. I'm a professor at the University of Arkansas. I'm an economist by training. Um, I had a passion for education economics. Teachers, seeing research teachers are the key ingredient into the success of kids. And um, so that's what drives me to try to find ways to better support them and retain them and get the great teachers. Full disclosure, Dr. Zamaro is actually on my dissertation committee, but as I study teacher preparation and how it affects teacher attrition, she's a natural fit. And that's why she's on this podcast, because as an economist, she looks at how teacher attrition and teacher labor markets, aka how many people are we employing, 
affects our economy as a whole. So for those of you who may have been listening, thank you for still listening, by the way, and thinking, what does this have to do with me? I'm not a teacher. I don't even know a teacher. She's going to talk about money. And one of the grad students in her program is actually going to talk about money and how it can affect all of us, regardless of if you're a teacher or not. So stay tuned. So I'm Andrew Camp. I'm a second year PhD student and distinguished doctoral fellow at the University of Arkansas. Um, And I started the program because I had been a teacher in some rural schools for about five years. Uh, I saw a lot of problems and I saw that the principals and administrators in those schools weren't really in the position to fix those problems. So I started the program to learn more about the greater education system and then see if I can also help make things better for kids. Teacher attrition. It's hot on everyone's minds because of COVID. And you guys were actually one of the first ones I saw that came out and published a brief on COVID. And that's why we're here today. I think it's, um, I've got it here. Understanding how COVID-19 has changed teachers' chances of remaining in the classroom. Can you say in your own words how you got into starting on that research brief and why you felt like it was so important? Yeah, so um, we decided to look at teachers because we realized that this pandemic has been really hard on them. We think about it in March 2020, we have to close the schools Teachers were asked to work in conditions that they have never experienced, to teach in ways they have never tried before. And then as the schools reopen on the fall of 2020, then you add the health concerns. Many teachers were forced to go back in the classroom to teach in person in a moment where we were having a rise of cases and a lot of uncertainty of measures in the schools and how things will work. That created has created a lot of concern within the research community that these conditions might push teachers away and we might start seeing higher levels of teacher attrition and have um, increased teacher shortages. And we are very worried about that. We, we know that certain areas are being affected by teacher shortages in particular particular more rural schools, or maybe we are lacking teachers in certain subjects like science or special education. Hmm. Rural schools, special areas like science. Sound familiar? This was an issue back in 2015 when I was getting my first teaching job. But now, as Dr. Zamaro is saying, it's getting worse as a result of COVID. And as a result, more students don't have a highly qualified licensed teacher in front of them. So one thing that really got me interested in this is uh, my my partner is a teacher. Um, You know, last year was my first year in this PhD program. And the first year as a PhD student supposed to be really hard. She was working way harder than I was, just trying to keep up with students that were quarantined or her virtual students. Um, And I saw all the work she was putting in. I knew that if teachers everywhere were doing that, there was a serious risk of a shortage. Uh, And that's especially bad as we think about recovering from COVID and we need you know, we maybe need small group tutoring and learning acceleration. If you have a, if you had a teacher shortage to that, then you're not going to be able to do any of these remedial strategies. So if there is a teacher shortage, that's a really pressing issue. So on top of not necessarily having enough teachers to cover all of the classrooms and losing teachers, we're also recovering from a pandemic. And there's a lot of students who didn't have access to high quality education for between three months to an entire year. Some may still struggle to get education based off their situations at home, the situations in their districts. But with less teachers, that means there's less individuals who are there who can provide remediation, who can do tutoring. 
And that's alarming. So in terms of rigorous academic research, what do Dr. Zamaro and Andrew say about what's happening with teacher attrition and COVID? Yeah, so for this work, we collected data on a nationally representative sample of teachers through the RAN American Teacher Panel. And we have data uh, of March 2021 that we can compare with some data we had collected previously in March 2020. And we want to document teachers' intentions to leave the classroom during the pandemic, how they have changed from March 2020 to March 2021, and which factors explain higher intentions to leave. And what we find is that teachers became less certain that they would work a full career in the classroom during the pandemic, and a high proportion of teachers consider leaving or retiring during that time. We see that 23% say they had considered leaving because of COVID, and 19% say they had considered leaving for other reasons. We don't see many differences on intentions to leave depending on level of experience of the teacher, but we do see that those teachers that are approaching retirement age are the ones that have considered living more. So 34% of teachers that are 55 years or older say they had considered living because of COVID. And when we look at the factors that are behind these higher intentions to live, we see that approaching retirement age is a significant factor along with having to change teaching mode during the year. So many teachers had to change and teach in different modes during the last academic year, and that increased stress, and that was related to intentions to live, and also health concerns. Um, and then we also asked teachers whether they knew colleagues that have considered living and whether they, those colleagues have left. And like others in the literature, we see that Considered living was more frequent than actually leaving the profession, but we should keep it in the context of the economy and the situation that we have. And um, that doesn't mean that we might not see more teachers leaving, or even if we see small amounts of teachers leaving, if they are leaving from those places that already have shortages, this is still a big problem, we think. So we just conclude saying that we have to care about our teachers and find better ways to support them. Hopefully the vaccines can alleviate some of the health concerns and if kids now that the kid vaccine is available, just available, if kids are taking the vaccine that might reduce uh, quarantines and school interruptions and that will make it easier on the mm -hmm. teachers. So there is some hope that that can help retain some teachers and our analysis supports that that would be good. Yeah, and I will add that the fact that we might be losing older teachers can be problematic if we lose the more experienced teachers yeah, yes. that have more um, experience in the classroom. Losing the older teachers could also be really bad for uh, teacher retirement systems. Um, and Dr. Zamaro can correct me if I'm wrong, but some systems are already under a lot of strain. So if there was a big wave of teachers who retire and start collecting benefits, that could put them in a very bad situation. Well, I didn't even think of that. So if more people are leaving than they expected leaving, they're suddenly having to cut a lot more checks than they expected. Mm -hmm. That messes up the budget real, real quick. Yeah, and that affects everyone, even people in the state who don't have kids. I think there, there's kind of two issues that I hope we can get a better understanding of in the Arkansas data. 
their teacher retirement is definitely a concern, but also is teacher turnover. Um, and so I think about that a lot in uh, context of those like those health concerns that teachers have. If you're somebody who's very concerned about COVID and your school district is not as concerned, you're going to feel kind of a mis uh, mismatch. Um, and so that might lead you to change schools. Uh, or the opposite could happen where maybe you're not as concerned and your school is taking really extreme precautions that add work. Um, you might think about changing schools. And so that kind of shuffling of the of the teacher labor market would be really interesting to see if that's happening. Okay. A lot of information there. So let's recap a little bit. First, the numbers. 23% of teachers considered leaving because of COVID. That's almost one in four. Think of your kid's schedule. English, social studies, math, science. One of them is gone by that kind of math. In addition to that 23% thinking of leaving due to COVID-19, another 19% consider leaving for other reasons. I get it. We all have off days and think maybe this will be the last day of this job and I'll just quit. But 90% seems really high to me. Then let's talk a little bit more about the statistics. The ones who are thinking of leaving more are those who are over 55, closer to retirement. We're seeing a lot on social media, particularly if you're on TikTok. You are probably seeing tons of TikToks of teachers who are either considering leaving or who have already left, who are now working for themselves or have found another job. We don't see that in the research, though, but that could be going back to that original data I shared with you about 44% of teachers leaving within five years anyway. If you're a younger teacher, you're already quite likely to leave. Finally, Andrew brought up the economic problem. What happens when all of these teachers retire and who's going to cover the retirement account when more people than are expected are retiring? And the perception. How do people feel about COVID and the mandates that it has put on their life, such as mask, no mask? And of course, there's the dissatisfaction with teaching. What does that have to do with student learning and why is it a problem? I actually studied this and submitted it with a partner to a research conference last year. And I've heard that opposition of, well, people are just thinking of leaving because that was actually my AEFP paper. We were just looking at who's thinking of leaving. And at the time, someone said, well, they're not actually leaving. So what's the big deal if they're not actually out of the classroom? If you're thinking of quitting your job, where is your headspace and how well are you doing your job? Um, have you guys looked into any of that or is that, I see head nodding. Can you tell us more about that? <laughs> yeah, so the, there, is a, um, there is some research on that actually that says that higher levels of job dissatisfaction or intentions to leave uh, are associated with uh, lower performance for kids. Um, so there is some relationship and that's my concern. Like even if you don't leave, the fact that you are thinking about leaving, you are burned out, that can also affect your effectiveness. Your head is in something else. Even if they don't leave, it, I, I think we should pay attention. And again, I also think that all these problems we are seeing are not unique of COVID. I think teachers working conditions were a problem before. And like many things, COVID has this ability of show a spotlight on the issues we already had in society. And I think it's just now showing us how fragile the situation was with teachers and how this has put so much pressure that now they are expressing it more. 
Long story short, teachers leaving is bad. Teachers thinking of leaving is also bad. We're stuck in this problem now. Teachers either want to leave because the work is admittedly extremely difficult, or they may want to leave but not be able to leave, and therefore their students may be affected as a result of it. So we have all of these cascading problems, all of these things going on. And I don't say this to be doom and gloom because not every teacher is running out the door, but it is happening more than it did before. The research shows that. And kids are affected, especially kids who are already in high needs areas. So what can we do about it? Based off of what you've found, are there any like specific solutions you can recommend that would address those teachers who are close to retirement, that shifting modes of instruction, um, the health concerns. What does the research say we should do now? So I think apart from trying to minimize health concerns with the hope that these vaccines are helping now for that, um, another thing we should focus is um, on the work environment of teachers. So there is research uh, um, by uh, Madcraft that has looked at also during the pandemic uh, and at the beginning of the pandemic when we, schools were closed. And he found that uh, schools that were where teachers had better relationships, uh, were better uh, principals, those are schools with more, uh, with a stronger work environments, teachers were able to cope better. So I think... Something we don't talk about a lot is how principals are also very stressed out. And who is your principal is going to determine very much your work environment. I think principals are being asked to do many, many more things, and they are also very stressed out. So finding ways to better support principals and finding ways so principals can give teachers more space to breathe and organize their work um, will be great. How to do that? This is still an open question, but I think we should all put our heads to think about how to do that. And I think the kind of the recommendation that I would make, if you look at our, our brief, biggest predictor of teachers' intention to leave was if they had to change mode of instruction. And while schools aren't shutting down and pivoting to remote and hybrid as much as they were, or maybe even at all, um, what is happening is that students are being quarantined. And so for individual students, the mode of instruction is changing quite a bit. And so something school leaders can do is consider what do you do when a, when a student is quarantined? Do you ask their regular teachers to also provide online instruction? Or do you have a dedicated person, uh, if your school is staffed well enough, that's going to handle those quarantined students? You're going to hear more about these solutions as we go on through this podcast. There are several episodes planned, each of which tackle a specific reason why teachers leave and what we can do to keep them in classrooms. Those reasons range from finances, how much money we pay them, how we compensate them, to the stress of the job, the compassion fatigue, all the way down to the environment they work in, disagreements with a boss, things like that. But I mentioned earlier that school is tied to economics. I asked Dr. Zamaro to specifically name that and describe it. And when she first answered, she said, I'm not sure what to say. And I asked her, just break it down in the simplest of terms. If we don't fix this problem, if we don't get teachers in classrooms, 
and more students struggle to have access to a high-quality teacher, what is the outcome that's going to happen as a result of that? Yeah, so I, I will add that um, research has shown that who is your teacher really matters, not only in this scores on the time that you are in school, but also in long-term outcomes for the life of those kids. So if you have good teachers that can better prepare you, you have more chances to have nice jobs, the less chances of being unemployed later on, have higher um, income and um so that's from a micro level. You can translate that into the economics of macro that will make the country to grow more, right? And we'll, then everybody will have more opportunities. So investing on teachers is also investing on the future of your country. Investing in your teachers is investing in the future of your country. I can't think of a better way to say it. If you're not investing in your teachers, you're not investing in your kids because all of the research says quite clearly the strongest indicator or factor that will influence a child's performance in the classroom, which is highly tied to their future performance in life, is the quality of their teacher. And students in high-need schools do not have the same access to a teacher as students in non-high-need schools. And if there's any confusion, let me go ahead and clarify now what I mean by high-needs. A school that is high needs will typically be in an urban area, a rural area. It will have students with characteristics such as belonging to a racial minority. It will have students who are on free and reduced lunch or below the poverty line. It will have students with special needs. It will have students who are English language learners, who are migrant. Those characteristics make it much more likely for a student to not have access to a high quality teacher just like my kids in my first school who didn't have a biology teacher for a whole year. Imagine if that had happened earlier. Seventh grade, fourth grade, first grade, a whole year lost, especially that early. What's the damage and how do we fix it? Or how do we prevent that damage from happening? How do we keep teachers in classrooms in the first place? That brings me to the next segment, of this episode. We've heard from the researchers about the statistics behind teachers who are leaving. But what about those who actually said, I'm not doing this, I'm done? I want to point out, COVID was not the only reason that either of the teachers you're about to hear from left. However, it was the straw that broke the camel's back. So let's hear from them. You're first going to hear from a woman named Sarah who actually left at the middle of 2020 rather than going into a full year of teaching in a pandemic. Then you're going to hear from Michael, who worked all the way through the 2020-21 school year before saying, no, I'm not doing this anymore. They're up next. Hi, my name is Sarah, and I was a classroom teacher for six years. I also taught abroad for a year prior to that. And I now work in the private sector. Like she said, she taught for six years in K-12 schools, but she also spent a year working abroad in Spain. Sarah has a passion for Spanish and foreign language, and she has a passion for expanding opportunities to her students. Although she continually displayed a love of teaching and a love of expanding opportunities for her students, her efforts weren't always well met. 
In fact, even from the first few weeks, Sarah noticed there were a few things that were not intolerable, but definitely odd. I went and signed a contract with a very, very small rural Title I, two different schools, really, that I was uh, working at in the same district um, for a salary of $30,400. I had that year of experience abroad, and I had a graduate certificate from a Spanish university, neither of which mattered. Um, I wasn't a fan, but I was all of 22, 23, and just happy to have my first job. So I remember going up to the, going up to the school, really excited. Uh, I meet the principal and hand him the signed paperwork. And all of a sudden he realizes he has never heard me speak Spanish <laughs> and he's just hired me as a Spanish teacher. And so he looks at me and he was like, Hey, before I take this to the superintendent, will you say something to me in Spanish? And I think I literally looked back at him and I was like, which is literally something in Spanish. And so, um, yeah, um, he showed me my classroom, all of the books, um, and basically what was available to me. And I was really excited, decorated my classroom. Um, and then a couple of weeks later found out, oh, that classroom is only yours um, half the day because you also teach the other half of the day, um, down the hall, but we can't let the eighth grade students come into the ninth grade hall. And then about week four, I find out that I am not going to have a high school classroom at all. And they've moved my middle school classrooms to one, two, three different locations. By week five, I was in a different building in a different classroom every single period of the day for seven periods straight. For those of you who have never taught before, Sarah's experience is not abnormal. Schools frequently run out of space, don't have enough classroom space, and teachers get shuffled around as a result. So you were a mobile teacher. Yes, and they bought me a shopping cart. As far as negative experiences go, this isn't the absolute worst, but it's still inconvenient. And teachers don't leave over just one thing. Keep that in mind. But this is one thing that's just a little inconvenient about a job that only pays $30,000 a year. After taxes and benefits, I'm making less than $1,000 in my bank account every two weeks. I'm like, okay, like this, I'm just starting out, you know, and then, oh, here's an office. But you legally can't have students in here because we have roach traps. And then my desk fell apart, and then my laptop started shocking me. Then the cockroaches revealed themselves, and so it just it just kind of kept spiraling from there. So through all of this, how was the actual teaching? Like, how were the kids? They came from a very broad range of backgrounds. Um, I had some students, they ranged from fifth grade to twelfth grade. Um, wow. I had students in high school, yeah, I had students in high school who couldn't read and write in English, mm -hmm. um, who were placed in my class and I just had to make it work. When I asked Sarah if she received any instructional support, people teaching her how to make lesson plans, how to structure her units, or if she had any behavioral support, someone to back her up on management issues, she didn't really have an example. To her words, she did not know that such services existed. 
the state was in this transition year where they quote unquote had a mentoring program for new teachers, but it made no sense for me because there was no other Spanish teacher. And so the person mentoring me was a wonderful, very kind, kind woman. We found out in, I think, February that the state had canceled the program in October. They just hadn't locked us out of the platform. So we had been doing, you know, weeks of work with the the program having been shut down. With these situations adding up and being all on her own in her content and not having friends in her hallway since she didn't have a hallway, she was all over the school, Sarah quickly realized this probably wasn't the school for her. Now, She wasn't planning on leaving teaching, but she was planning on leaving this school. And while that in and of itself is not whole teacher attrition, that's still a school that needs teachers for their kids that is losing a highly qualified and experienced teacher. I let my administration know as soon as I started seeing job postings that I was looking to go somewhere else, that this wasn't really what was advertised to me and that I was struggling. Um, And they supported me leaving. <laughs> they were like, yeah, it's hard here. Go for it. Like not even say, oh wait, no. what can I change for you? Just, Absolutely okay, bye. Not. No. Yep. They were and very accustomed to that. One thing about teaching Spanish is a high need subject. When I say high need subject, that means it's hard to find teachers to fill those positions. Therefore, you may leave a school, but if you teach a high need subject, it's not hard to find another one to go work at because there's a shortage of those teachers. Sarah quickly found another school. In fact, it was a school she had interned at back when she was going through her teacher education program. Year two was a lot more cohesive as far as hearing, yes, we appreciate you and we value you and also being given some support. Now for first year teachers in the district, they had an observation system Um, which was not a mentoring system. It was the principal did extra observations on you because you were, you know, at that point in evaluation cycles. I just had to fill out a lot of extra paperwork and have a very confused man sit in my classroom once every couple months while he tried to figure out what I was saying. He was a good sport about it. I was a good sport about it. Made a great um, professional relationship with my assistant principal. As far as support from the school, eh, uh, you know, we existed. They didn't know what to do with us. Mm -hmm. Um, But I had a really, really, really strong department. Definitely felt the difference between a $30,000 salary and a $40,000 salary. Like the first time Sarah was threatened by a student at work. I was teaching a Spanish one class Um, easily my rowdiest group, but being 23, 24, I really embraced it because I mean, no matter what kind of energy is happening in a classroom, it's energy that I can feed off of and make something positive happen. Mm -hmm. Um, and so there was, there was a weird vibe with this particular class. Mm -hmm. So we get to doing an activity. I get the class started. We're doing an activity. I'm walking around and just kind of like, hey, you know, I get that today, maybe an off day, but, you know, would would you mind, you know, pretending to look busy when I walk by? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we can have better days later just, just so that, you know, we have the vibe that something's going on. Mm-hmm. 
you know, it's, it's one of those things that you don't want to do every day, but students are going to have off days. So, Hey, could you just go with the flow with me today? I'll go with the flow with you. Mm-hmm. And I walk away and I hear the group around him go, Ooh, and someone else goes, not her. Cause so-and-so saying he'll jump you. And I was like, what? And she said, yeah, if I ever see Miss Wyatt on the street, I'm a jumper. I can't believe she blah, 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 blah. And I was like, I was like, hey, would, would you mind going to talk to our assistant principal about that? Because um, that's, that's not okay. And so... You are so polite about this. Would you mind going to talk to them? Like, Yeah, um, this student was considerably larger than me. And in a class full of a weird energy, my instinct was, hey, let's de-escalate. Um, so I wasn't going to back him into a corner. I knew that he was kind of a, I don't want to say an angry kid, but he had, he had trouble. He was suspended a lot, um, mostly for fighting or for threatening people. And I was like, okay, well, you know, I'm going to need you to go talk to so-and-so. Mm-hmm. And so he leaves in a huff, slams the door, and the whole class just like silently stares at me and found out... After that class period, a student came up to me and said, the guy you sent to an office is in a gang. And I was like, oh, uh, that's good information to know. Um, And another student said, I think they're about to get busted for selling drugs. Okay. So in my head, I'm thinking, this is a minor infraction compared to what's coming. I'm sure it'll all get sorted out. I won't have to see this student again. Um, Because, I mean, I was a young, single, 20-something, if this student had looked up where I lived or lived nearby, I could have been in danger. Um, And the student almost floats into my class that next class period, looks me dead in the eye and says, hey, I'm like, hey, what are you doing? Going to class. Got through the class, um, just kept my distance, kept as many students and desks between us. I run down to the office and I'm like, hey, why is so-and-so still in my class? oh, well, you know, it's, it's probably not a big deal. And I was like, what do you mean it's probably not a big deal? I had a student come to me after class saying that he's in a gang and sells drugs on campus. Oh, well, you know, you just got to believe in them and don't take everyone's word. I was like, the student threatened to jump me if he saw me in public on the street. And then he said, do you want him removed? And I said, yes, I want him removed. I, I feel threatened by the student. And... I just remember, oh, you know, you just got to love them. You just, you just got to see where they're coming from. That probably doesn't mean anything to him. Sarah's story is not particularly uncommon. Depending on the school you're in, not all students get removed from a classroom or punished in any way, shape, or form when they make threats against a teacher. And so when a principal told me that it wasn't a big deal, I tried really hard to believe them. And I tried really hard to push past it. I went back to class and the rest of that class until a couple weeks later is a blur to me. Um, Two or three weeks after that incident, the student did indeed get expelled for threatening someone, I guess, more important than me and for dealing drugs on campus. Needless to say, Sarah's experience through this ordeal was rough. She didn't know what to think. Was this sort of thing normal? Is this how a threat to a teacher was normally addressed? Why hadn't she received any communication? Why hadn't someone at least emailed her to say, hey, we got it. 
It's not a big deal. He's coming back to class. She was confused. She was hurt. But this isn't supposed to be a gripe fest. So to be transparent, things weren't all bad. She did have in her building multiple principals, an executive, assistant principal, so on, so on. And her executive principal at the time was great. Once when Sarah got miscommunication about a professional development she was supposed to attend and found out at the last minute she needed to have three days of sub plans ready to go, she had a great experience with her boss, helping her work through the problem, figure out what she needed to do, and ultimately solve the problem. And so the next school year comes and it's a lot of the same stuff, really adjusting, getting in a groove. We get new curriculum for foreign language. It's really high tech. It's really fun. We have a blast with it. Halfway through the year, the principal goes missing and we're like, not literally, um, just kind of goes MIA as far as communication with our school. We found out that um, she had moved and taken a job in another state. Something I should acknowledge here, principal turnover is a thing too. I'm not going to focus on it as much in this series, but it is a thing. Principals do come and go just like teachers do. So from there, the year winds up and Sarah gets ready to start her third year of teaching. That third school year comes and I have accepted the workload of teaching AP. I go to AP school. I build the program to the largest it has ever been in the history of that school. But that year was a struggle from an administration perspective. Sarah poured her heart and her soul into her third year. She spent countless extra hours on top of getting her master's in education, trying to find extra opportunities for her students. She found a state-level program that, upon passing a test, would give students a special seal on their diplomas, marking them as biliterate. Tons of students wanted to get the award, and a passion for foreign language bloomed at the school. Unfortunately, the process of getting the award, paperwork, fees, setting up test days, did not go over well with administration. We didn't get communication. It got to the point where when I sent an email, I had to say, if you don't answer by X day, I'm going to go with X solution. The executive principal at the time was not responding to email correspondence. He was not responding to showing up in his office. If you walked up in the hall and said, hey, I need to talk to you about this. Do you have a minute? He would point blank stare at you and say no and walk away. And this administrator was not new to the building. And so it was not expected that he would react this way. Parents emailed him because they would email me and say, hey, have you heard about this? And I would email back and say, yes, I know all about it. The state approved it, you know, a couple of months ago. I'm really excited to to have this opportunity for the students to have a certificate at graduation saying that they are bilingual and biliterate. I'm waiting on an answer from Mr. So-and-so. I got to the point where I, I couldn't put them off anymore. And I said, hey, I haven't heard back. If you want to reach out to him, go for it. And I still did not get any response. And so I, I collected funds and raised money through a school-approved system wrote the receipts, dotted my I's, crossed my T's, had everything documented down to the penny. And I had approved all of this through my assistant principal. And then I guess maybe the executive principal decided to open his email. Um, I don't exactly know what flipped a switch and made him suddenly 
fiery, fiery communication. Um, Mm -hmm. So he calls my assistant principal, basically says, put a stop in it. I never authorized this. He came down to my room, said, hey, I had your back. I supported you. I told him that I had authorized it because he hadn't given an answer. I told him that you did all of the right things. He's still saying that he is the one who's in control. He's the one who has the authority. And you have to completely undo all of this. At the last minute, Sarah found out that all of her hard work, her grant writing, her communication with parents, recruiting students to take these classes and take this biliteracy exam was for absolutely nothing. The problems didn't stop there. Later in the year, Sarah was also working towards her national board certification, basically a fancy bar exam for teachers. It usually comes with some form of increased pay and is a sign that this person is a highly qualified teacher. However, Sarah had more issues over this process when her principal would not approve her to go to certain training she needed in order to complete the national board's process. In the end, that admin was the reason she chose to leave school number two. One weekend, while coming back from an out-of-town trip, she got a call. The day that we got back, I got a phone call from a neighboring school district that said, hey, I have a Spanish position open. Can you interview today? Yeah, let's go. And it had nothing to do with the parents, the kids, the teaching. It was just... It was that executive principal. I've heard that quote several times from people. (laughs) People don't leave because of schools. They leave because of school leaders. Yep, absolutely. So then you get to school number three. Yeah, I was super excited to be there. They were super excited to have me. Anytime that I had an issue, the administration backed me up. It was night and day. I I spent that year recovering from bad administration Mm -hmm. and learning what it meant to have a good, solid administration that wasn't going anywhere. If you haven't already put it together... Sarah entered this school in the fall of 2019, which meant her first year at this third school would also be the year that COVID happened. And we all know how that story ends. Students didn't go back to school in the spring of 2020. Sarah, who had started driving a bus route due to a bus driver shortage at that rural school she now worked at, did everything she could to see her students from driving her route in her personal vehicle checking in via phone, just trying to make sure her students were okay. But I do want to point out, and this is critical, she didn't blame anyone for the situation or the confusion surrounding contacting students, making sure they were okay, even getting them their schoolwork. The support wasn't there because they didn't know what they didn't know. I will never, ever fault anyone for how they reacted or how what kind of support we got in that semester of spring of 2020 because it was... It was a huge shock. That semester kind of faded into the summer. We all just kind of thought, well, if we're still in quarantine and still in lockdown, surely they won't start us back. The state announced that they were pushing school back by a week or two, and that was it at the time. Um, Then they announced a mask mandate and that they would give us each a paper mask and a single glove not a pair, a single glove. And it was at that point that I realized that all of that strife that I had gone through 
to try to do what was best by my students and try to be the best person and professional that I could for them, nobody cared. My students, of course, cared. Their parents cared. But as far as society as a whole, they wanted me to start providing the babysitting again. And I hate to say it that way, um, but that, that's how I felt. There was no vaccine at the time and no one was going to protect me. Um, my school at the time told me that there was no money and there was no supply of sanitizer. So we had to find something. And this is when there was no Lysol on the shelves. There was no hand sanitizer. There was absolutely nothing. Um, so I left K-12. Ultimately, Sarah would move on to a job in higher ed. At the time, she had a principal's license, so she qualified to work as a person who could train future teachers, and she did this job for about a year. But at the time, Sarah didn't know if things were going to be okay or not. And regardless of the outcome, her fears were not taken into account. And as a result, she left a classroom. She left teaching entirely. And after working outside of teaching, she has decided she's not going back. Maybe if her fears had been taken into account, if there had been a different handling of the situation, she would still be a teacher. Now there's one less Spanish teacher in this area. That's another hole to fill, another group of kids without a teacher. But Sarah's story is not unique. There's another teacher I'd like you to hear from today, and his name is Michael. And Michael would put in roughly eight or nine years of teaching before he ultimately leaves the classroom. Fast forward to uh, my student teaching, which is, you know, kind of like your first real experience in a classroom Mm -hmm. with kids long term. Um, It was it was amazing. And that's kind of the first point that I really knew that I had made the right decision Um, Mm -hmm. when I was able to get into a classroom and work with students and get to know them. That kind of confirmed my decision to confirm that I had thought that I'd made the right decision moving from engineering to education. So what was it like when you went from student teaching to your first real full-time classroom? So I was at the same school, Mm -hmm. which was helpful that I already knew just about everybody in the math department. But when I was student teaching, (laughs) I was doing advanced classes, algebra two, pre-cal, AP calculus, which was great because I was this former engineering major, nerdy math lover, and being able to have those conversations with kids who had similar interests was really rewarding. I don't know that I developed great classroom management skills as a student teacher because the kids were so great. It wasn't a necessity. Mm -hmm. Um, When I went to actually teach in my first year with my own classroom, I was teaching algebra one to mostly freshmen (laughs) coming from mostly juniors and seniors with the advanced classes. So it was very different, but I survived because of that support system that existed at that school. We tried uh, kind of like a partially flipped classroom on a whim, starting just recording videos. I mean, total side note, I was the most prepared teacher ever for COVID because I was recording video lessons for a flipped classroom model back in 2014. We transitioned from like 
screen recording, teaching videos to just actually recording ourselves with the whiteboard. We would wear goofy costumes, all kinds of fun stuff. We had, we did a math field day and then we put a big X, Y axis using the tiles on the floor. We we do all kinds of fun games. We actually, we actually had a a teacher band too. (laughs) And this is, this is going to be a dated reference, but the band's name was uncommon core. Um, (laughs) I love it. (laughs) It was a lot of fun. I really, I really had a good time and it was difficult, but it was rewarding and I felt like what I was doing mattered and I felt like I was actually making a difference with the kids that I was working with. Yeah, I felt pretty supported as I feel like I really developed a confidence in my, in my ability to handle whatever came at me. But confidence isn't the only thing you need to teach. And for Michael, that meant thinking forward about the future. Michael was teaching in Oklahoma at the time, but he wasn't from Oklahoma. Once I was able to survive my first year teaching, I started thinking ahead and asking myself where I saw myself in five years, 10 years. Ultimately, I made the conclusion that I was not going to be able to support a family, a future family. I didn't have a family at the time, but just thinking ahead, I would not be able to support a family on $32,000 a year. Mm-hmm. Um, I was able to get by because I was had a roommate Mm -hmm. and because housing is so cheap in Oklahoma and there were two of us with no children at the time, we were fine. But I just kept thinking that this isn't sustainable. This isn't going to last. So while Michael wasn't necessarily thinking of leaving the classroom outright, he was having to leave one classroom in order to move to another in a whole other state. And that leaves a hole in a classroom in Oklahoma that someone has to fill. Well, a lot of Oklahoma teachers do move to Texas because the pay is higher and more sustainable. Started looking at opportunities back in Texas around spring break that year. And ultimately it turns out when you've been spending a whole year trying all kinds of crazy stuff and flipped classrooms and you go into a teaching interview, you're, you're gonna, that's good stuff. And yeah. And so I was able to get a job at a really good school and it was close to where I grew up and where I wanted to live And I decided to make that change, not because I wasn't happy with what I was doing, but because I didn't think that my lifestyle was sustainable long term. And I did want a family someday. This is a reality for a lot of teachers. $32,000 a year. Maybe you're married to another teacher. $64,000 a year. After you get rent, car payments, phone, internet, student loans, all those things. Can you really afford a kid with that? Can you send them to a high-quality daycare? It's just not doable. And on top of all of those things, this is just money we're talking about. But let's not forget, teaching isn't just money. It's time. And unfortunately for teaching, our time isn't the most valuable commodity. I look back on it and just can't imagine how I survived. And I survived because I had no personal life. Mm -hmm. Um, I would leave work when the sun was down and I would routinely be the last car in the parking lot. Um, I was staying until 6 PM and school got out at four o'clock. Some days, seven, eight, some days I would have dinner and come back. And on top of that, we did um, something called Saturday algebra and we would do Saturday morning tutoring for two or three hours 
for those algebra one kids to help them out. I can admit now kind of selfishly, I was kind of doing that for the money. I loved being able to help the kids, but um, one of the thoughts that kept coming to my mind that whole year was, I love that I, that I can do this, but I hate that I have to work Saturdays. Like I wish I could do my job and didn't feel like Saturday algebra was important for the kids to be able to be successful. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, work-life balance was, (laughs) was difficult. I did not have a personal life, which again fed into the decision that I don't think this is a sustainable lifestyle long-term for me. Mm -hmm. And there were plenty of teachers who made it work. So, I mean, I don't mean to imply that it's impossible, but I just knew that for the life that I wanted, it didn't feel like something I was going to be able to do long-term. The biggest change from my first school to my next school was just that there was money. I mean, first of all, I was making fifteen, sixteen thousand dollars $16,000 more just from one year to the next. Mm-hmm. And I remember asking my department chair at my new school for some supply. I don't remember what it was. And he took me to the math supply closet. And there's this whole closet of just, it's like an aisle at Staples, just everything you could imagine that a teacher would need. Each department had a budget for, for just supplies, whiteboards, markers, every, everything that I had spent the last two years spending my own money on, mm-hmm. there was a budget for it and we had it. There were times that I did spend my own money, but it was never out of necessity. It was because I wanted to. And one thing I wanted to mention is that between those first two years where I was teaching in Oklahoma, there were, I mean, I had to skip out on a lot of fun things. I had to skip out on two of my friends' bachelor parties when I was in their weddings because Mm -hmm. they wanted to go to Vegas or Denver. And I was like, there's no way I can afford a plane ticket right now. Like Mm -hmm. an extra $600 just is not going to come out of nowhere. Um, And sure, it it, it sounds trivial, but I mean, those are life experiences and it it starts to add up where you realize that something is that seemed as superficial as my paycheck Mm -hmm. um, translates to real life experiences that you're going to miss out on. So I would say that my move to Texas accomplished everything that I wanted it to. I felt like I did have a much better work-life balance. I could pay all my bills. I could afford an apartment on my own. And then things went even more swimmingly when Michael met his future wife. You know, having a life turns out it pays off. You're able to to have relationships and, you know, just experience being in your 20s and young 30s. Until pretty recently, I would have told you that I was going to stay at that school and retire there. In that time, I did um, start dating my wife and we got engaged and we bought a house together. It's not that anything necessarily about my job changed at that time, but my perspective about what the rest of the world, the rest of the adult population experiences in their day-to-day lives. The 2019-2020 school year, I remember... You know, she would definitely get home later than me at times, mm-hmm. pushing six o'clock. But when she was home, that was it. Um, you know, extremely rare for for her to have to get out work over dinner or, you know, 
worry, check emails at 10 PM and reply to emails. And so seeing the way that she was able to just be home and be present and not get (laughs) the Sunday scaries to the extent that a teacher does, Mm -hmm. it was eye opening. And I was jealous to be honest. Michael was starting to get a view of the outside world. And when 2019 happened, that was the school year when COVID happened. Before the fourth quarter could even start in March of 2020, school shut down. It was easy for me to grade tests until 8 p.m. alone in my apartment. Um, but it, when you have people that you want to spend time with, it, it makes it a lot harder and you do start to resent it. And to be totally honest, I, I think I became a worse teacher that year because I, I'm a stubborn person and oftentimes I was unwilling to give up that time with her. There were, I, I had to make compromises. And, and so it, it was always conflicting having to decide between living a life and doing teacher things. I kind of want to challenge that though, because why does it make you a bad teacher for not working off the clock? Why do we feel that guilt about, oh, I gave the kids a test. I must grade it at this time, even though I'm not contracted to, I'm not paid to. And why do we feel that guilt? Because if anything, I think that makes us feel worse. And when we feel worse, we're more like, this isn't for me. To me, it's like, this this sounds way too pretentious, but it's like, I have a standard for what I want to do. And I was able to do it. And then I, I was, I was having to turn away from that standard for, for personal reasons, for selfish reasons. And I didn't like that inner conflict. Another interesting story that year Mm -hmm. that, that really stuck with me. I was preparing for our wedding. We got married in February, 2020, Mm -hmm. uh, February 29th on leap day. And I took six days off, which was the longest I'd ever taken off. I was always one of the teachers who hated taking off. I would come to school with a runny nose, power through it. Um, and I was taking six days off and I'd never done anything like that in my career. I was able mm-hmm. to get an, our best sub, work with her in advance, create plans. It, I felt really good about it. And I had one specific student who had been, you know, been one of those students that, that, as you know, just needs your attention all year. And you've been communicating with the parent multiple times, you know, one of the students that just takes up more of your time, which is never a bad thing, but you always have those students. There were some issues going on with this student on my last day before I was taking off the week of my wedding. Oh no. And there was a conflict with the parent. And I remember receiving multiple emails challenging me on what I'd said about what was going on demanding a phone call after school as I'm working till I think I stayed till like six six thirty was late for dinner with my wife's parents oh gosh trying to get everything ready and I'm having to call this parent to re-explain what I'd already said in an email to figure out what's going to happen to catch up this kid while I'm not there because I'm getting married. And that, that really stuck with me. That was the very few times when I was just like completely done. And that was one of them. 
On top of that insanity, Michael would go on to his honeymoon in Mexico with his new wife and start reading about toilet paper shortages on the beach. By the time he got back, Texas was completely different from when he had left it, and we were in full pandemic mode. With a shutdown over the majority of the United States and Texas schools closed, Michael taught from home and was well prepared thanks to his experience with Flip Classroom. However, there was still the next year to gear up for, and no one knew what it was going to look like. Spring of 2020, the goal was just survive it. I mean, literally, and mm-hmm. um, just make it through the end of the school year. And I don't know that anybody, I certainly wasn't thinking ahead to what it was going to be like the next school year. I think we all kind of thought that things would have been figured out. And so the summer was great just getting through that year. But as summer started to wrap up and then we start looking ahead to the next school year, realizing like there's there's no cure for this right now. There's cases are going up. And as we start kind of getting into the back to school, you know, the emails start coming mid July, late July, you start thinking about that. That's when things really changed for me. It very much felt like we were being forced back. Not that we were ready to go back. And I know a lot of other States stayed fully remote. um, But Texas was one of the States that very forcefully from like a top-down government level was forcing schools to be open. And I, among with a lot of people that I work with, probably most of them did not feel safe going back. Not that we didn't want to work, not that we didn't want to teach, but it felt very forceful and unsafe. And that was the moment that I remember thinking, if I could do anything else, if I had any better options, I would take them. Like it wasn't theoretical at that time. It was real. It was, I would do this um, if I could. And I didn't, I didn't have any better options because the great thing about teaching in Texas is that you make enough money to survive, to pay your bills. The bad thing about that is that there's nothing else that's going to pay you that much that you can just pivot to that easily. Um, You know, if I was in Oklahoma, I can find a job that's going to pay me $32,000 anywhere. Um, But yeah, I I didn't have any options that wouldn't come with a significant decrease in pay that I could have just taken at that moment. But the thought that I would have, that I wanted to, never left me. And then 2020, 2021, that school year just exacerbated every, every problem in the education system that teachers had to deal with. Yeah, extra duties, extra work, extra, extra planning, creating online lessons. It just massively increased the workload. There's these two specific things that continually I couldn't get over. It was... 30 minutes of restroom duty every day. And mine happened to be in the middle of my planning period. So what used to be 90 minutes of great uninterrupted planning time where I could actually really grade and get stuff done was 30 minutes, probably more like 25 when you talk about being in the hallway. Then I have to walk down and sit in front of a restroom awkwardly and make sure no more than three kids go in there. Hopefully the teacher after me shows up for duty Luckily, they usually did. And then I can actually leave to enjoy another 25 minutes back in my room. 
And on top of that, the school day was increased 25, 30 minutes. That meant that now when I'm normally going home at 4.30, now it's actually closer to 5 that I'm staying. And so I'm losing 30 minutes of planning time, plus I'm now working 30 minutes longer. That's when the work-life balance kind of fell back out. And I it just felt very unsustainable again. Um, and I felt overworked constantly um, and honestly resented a lot of it. And I kept struggling with it because I, it's just 30 minutes, right? Like anybody can just say, it's just 30 minutes. You can sit in the hallway and you can still work and bring your laptop. But all those small things just add up. And over the course of a school year, losing 30 minutes of planning and then staying 30 minutes longer to teach just really adds up to a significant increase in workload, which ultimately leads to, I'm going to do the work at home. And what was already kind of beginning to be an issue that I was experiencing at home, having to work, not having time with my wife, just goes even further. The decision point that I reached in my mind was, if I were to continue doing this, I'm going to be unhappy or I'm not, I'm going to have to accept not being as good of a teacher. I'm going to have to care less. And I was not okay with that. So ultimately that's why I made the decision that I needed to leave. There are teachers just like Michael and Sarah dedicated to their students committed to growing as individuals and as teachers who ultimately aren't there anymore. And these are teachers in high needs subjects. There's not a bunch of math teachers and Spanish teachers walking through the doors ready to teach. So how are we going to replace them and make sure that all students still have access to a math teacher and a Spanish teacher and any other teacher who's high quality, who's ready, who's there for them? That's what we need to find out. On the next episode of Green Apple Pod, we'll be focusing on the policy context of teacher attrition. We've spent today focusing on COVID-19 and the drastic impact it's had on teacher attrition. But let's get real. Teacher attrition is not a new issue. It's an exacerbated issue, but it's not new. So next episode, we're going to talk about how this problem started and why it's still a problem. We're going to also talk to you some teachers who, you know, want to be teachers. But as a result of the system being set up the way it is, they can't, at least not in the traditional sense. Look out next week for the next episode of Green Apple Pod, The Teacher Attrition Vortex. The most important element of these stories is the lived experiences of teachers and education stakeholders. To share your perspective or to give feedback on this episode, please leave a voicemail or text message at 334-472-4019. You can also send a message through our website, passiontoprogress.com slash contact, or direct message our social media pages on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. This has been Green Apple Pod, hosted by Jessica Enderlin-Nadzim and produced by Ruth Amundsen. 
If you would like to follow along and learn more, please subscribe to our host organization, Passion to Progress, on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. We are available for listening through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Podbean.